Hey there, nature lovers. Welcome to the first episode of the Spooky Bunch podcast. Welcome to October. We have a lot of festivities planned for y'all this month. And to coincide with those festivities, we also happen to have a new special merch drop. We've got new spooky creatures, nudie, and all that fun stuff, as well as the Spooky Bunch logo designs and maybe some other funky, fresh things coming your way. So if that's something you want to cop, Make sure for the whole month of October, you head on to our website, our merch store. You can find that on our website, www.thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. And use the code SPOOKY in all caps for 15% off. I repeat, that's SPOOKY, S-P-O-O-K-Y, in all caps, for 15% off. Make sure to head over there and join us for some spooky fun. Without further ado, though, let's get into it. Welcome, everybody, to 2021's first episode of the second season of the Spooky Bunch podcast, where we talk everything conservation, education, and fascination with a little kind of flair like the one that you might see coming out of your jack-o'-lantern that you carved for this month. I love that. I know. I, I, I heard the fascination. No, I wanted keep, I'm keeping it in. I'm again. keeping it in. Oh, God, why? <laughs> I'm Matt. Just get into it. I'm keeping Lynn. <laughs> I'm Matt, and why don't y'all join me with my two co-hosts around the campfire? I'm CJ. And I'm Brittany. And I, for one, am super excited to share what we've brought for y'all for this month of October. Now, before we get into our special little festivities, CJ and Brittany... How you doing this week? How's uh how's the Halloween excitement coming? Well, I gotta be honest with you, Matthew. I'm not too excited for Halloween just yet. I'm over here celebrating our nicest episode ever. This episode is pretty nice. Now, I'm super excited about this episode as well, CJ, but why is this episode so nice? Well, I mean, it's the first episode of the Spooky Bunch, of course, and uh, it's always nice to be in the spooky season. So mm -hmm. I'm finally getting excited for it. Well, I can't disagree with that notion, that's for sure. How you been lately? I'm thriving. I'm trying to trying to be outside more, trying to get that nice weather in while it's still here. But we're, we're that fall crispness is coming, and I'm really loving it. Yeah, fall crispness is a common, that's for sure. So... I'm glad you're enjoying it while you can. Brittany, my friend, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I am gearing up for spooky season. I have just been de on full-blown decoration mode for Halloween. This week, I also had the honor of being able to go to some of the AZA conference. Um, and I have really enjoyed getting to just watch different panels and learn and and get to participate in uh different different aspects of that conference so it was really lovely and um i'm so happy that this is the first time i actually have gotten to be a part of it so it was super exciting yo that is super mcfrickin' sick i gotta say i'm very excited you got to have that experience and i'm very glad you got to share it with all of us yeah i know i went to the aza conference a few years ago and it's 
it's really just a special, you know, to, to learn something new from a couple of different zoo professionals is really, really fabulous. So glad you got that opportunity, Brittany. Love to hear it. Mm-hmm. Matt, how have Absolutely. you been at the beginning of the spooky season? Yeah, no, and I'm sure, you know, I'm getting real excited for the spooky season, I gotta say. Um, I am working on currently designing my jack-o'-lanterns for this year. So when those are all done, those I will post as well. But I'm having a grand old time, been doing a lot of birding. And the last weekend I got Woodstork in Ohio and then Snowy Egret and also Sabin's Gull, which was weird. A lot of bird banding as well. Um, been really cool just to, you know, continue working on honing that skill so eventually I can be certified. Just really fun life in total. But the thing that I'm most excited about is the Spooky Bunch podcast and especially today's episode of the Spooky Bunch podcast because I love to tell stories. I've always loved to tell stories. I've loved to hear stories as well. And today we're going to talk a little bit about how stories are friggin' powerful, bruh. So why don't we uh, jump right in and get into this first spooky creature feature. Now today's creature feature, to kick off this whole month of spooky escapades, is none other than one of the most terrifying species I have ever encountered, the Wilson Snipe. Okay, so I might be exaggerating a little bit, but as you'll learn just a little bit later, there's real power in stories, as well as the way you tell them. Now, the Wilson Snipe is a mid-sized shorebird, and to be honest, rather than scary, they're actually kind of funny. They have these really weirdly shaped bodies with the official Cornell Lab of Ornithology description being pudgy. They have short and stocky legs and a bill that's just about several times the length of its head. And they use these bills to probe through dirt and search for their prey, essentially just poking the ground and displaying males also make an odd whistling sound known as minnowing that is actually caused by air passing through their feathers. Even scientifically described, the Wilson snipe is a weird bird. But can you imagine what the description of the Wilson snipe would have been when it was first seen? A bird that whistled with a giant toothpick on its face that it used to just repeatedly stab the ground with? God, I would have loved to have been the first person to hear about that. And what's even more comedic, though, is that when I said snipe, I'm sure at least one of you went back to the thought of Kevin from Up, where Carl tells Russell that he can help him if he finds a snipe, thinking the snipe is going to be a non-existent species, a wild goose chase, if you will. Now, the funny part about this is that this is actually a real phenomena that we have seen in folklore, the snipe hunt. You see, newbies in lumberjack campgrounds were subject to a similar snipe hunt, where they were tasked with finding a mythical creature known as a snipe in a bag. Descriptions of this snipe varied from weird-sounding deer to snakes to, you know, your everyday average screaming birds, but the result was always the same. The poor soul would never catch the snipe, but the seasoned veterans who had been around the camp for a while always seemed to have it only a bag, only for it to accidentally get away. 
Point is, the Wilson snipe is really an unfortunately named species, but regardless, it makes its way into hundreds of years of folklore passed around with nothing more than simple word of mouth. And there's power in these stories, just like any other. And that includes news stories. So let's get into some current events. So my current event comes from Monaga Bay, and the title reads, Thanks to the Uroke tribe, condors will return to the Pacific Northwest. I will apologize in advance if I uh, did not say that tribe's name correctly. But the article is talking about how this specific tribe has been working since the early 2000s to be able to get these condors back into the Pacific Northwest. And so it starts talking about how they were initially actually turned down from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to re-release these birds out there because they were initially given the reason because the condor was too important to release into an area that they don't know if they'll thrive or not because condors are critically endangered and there's only said to be as of now 300 wild condors and at one point the condor population was down to 23 individuals which is crazy um but Thankfully, due to captive breeding and in, and the Endangered Species Act, they've been protected and they've gotten those numbers up to 300. However, there is this cultural aspect that is very significant to the Uruk tribe. And they will use the condor feathers in different ceremonies. And there's just a, a long history that makes the condor so special and important to them and they've worked very very hard to be able to get them to be re-released out in the pacific northwest and so they finally got permission as of this year and they've been working on this since 2003 i believe and it's just really really special they were shut shut down in 2013, but uh, with this passing and them getting the okay, they're going to release four um, of these condors up there. And um, the whole article it talks about how just happy they are and honored they like this tribe is to be able to be a part of this story because it's something that is so connected to to not only the individuals, but to their history and to their heritage. So I just thought it was really interesting. I think that, and special, I think it's awesome to be able to get marginalized individuals into conservation and not having them shut down. I also think that just being able to broaden where these condors could potentially thrive is really important. Um, and I hope that this will continue. Yeah, one thing we talk a lot about here on the Birdie Bunch is inclusion and accessibility. We talked at length last week with Fran McGregor and Virginia Rose all about including people with disabilities in conservation, in birding, in nature. And it's really key to include 
um, black and indigenous people of color in conservation because for the most part they're really left out of the conversation so i really appreciate this current event Brittany. thank you so much for bringing that to our attention yeah thanks a ton for positing that i gotta say this is one of those stories that you hear and not only does it make you feel good but it kind of makes you realize that this is the way it should be and just how integral all these different diverse communities are to conservation that we've historically left out like it's it's got to change if we want to actually make real rapid positive change and so it's a really good testament to the direction that things should head and i would hope serves as a blueprint going forward so my current event comes from conservation.org and it's this new source that i've been getting some really cool conservation news from there's all a recurring feature from this conservation news organization uh, called their three stories you may have missed. It's really easy with how much news there is in general to have conservation news fly under the radar. And then there's so much conservation news that it's really easy for some really cool and really important stuff to fly under the radar. So I actually really like this column. Um, so if you would like to check it out, check out conservation.org slash blog, and you can see their posts. And there were two that were really tied together that I thought were really important and cool to bring up. So, and so the first one is titled scientists are toilet training baby cows to cut emissions. And the second one being titled a cheap low tech method that could slash farm carbon emissions. And these are really kind of closely tied together. It's talking about curbing harmful greenhouse gases from agricultural industry. And so I figured they go in the same vein. They're not very long and they just kind of touch upon them. So the first one is essentially scientists in New Zealand are training cows to use an experimental item that they call the Mulu. And this is kind of like a, a potty pad that they are training the cows to pee on. Because what those pads will do is they will capture and then neutralize the byproducts that come from cattle urine. Cattle urine contains a lot of actually really harmful compounds releases nitrates into waterways which are particularly bad as far as pollution goes as well as it also has methane and nitrous oxide you've all heard of the cattle methane issue and this is one big big portion of it cattle release a lot of methane and that's included in their urine so what they're doing is they are taking those hopefully eventually those 1.4 billion cows and they are teaching them to pee on these pads so that they can neutralize the effect of that urine before it releases the nitrous oxide and the methane and all that and help climate change. And another thing that they're doing with crops now is they're talking about rock dusting croplands. Now, this is a really kind of a weird sounding one, but it actually is a little ingenious. So there's groups of rocks, of minerals, of compounds. Essentially, they are silicate rocks that when they come in contact with carbon dioxide, they suck the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and convert it into a rock. They take that air and they convert it into stone by merging it with that own compounds on the original rock itself. This is actually why in certain eras in our history, as far as like geological history goes, times where there's a lot of mountainous activity and areas with a lot of mountainous activity actually have less of a pronounced warming effect 
than others because there's so much exposed silicate matter on really large mountain ranges that it will suck the carbon dioxide out of the air and it causes a cooling effect. So what they're doing is talking about putting this kind of silicate rock dust onto plants, crops, and with the hope that it could remove approximately 68% scientists are hoping of the total greenhouse gases produced by agriculture each year. This is really, really big because food production is responsible for about a third of all greenhouse gas emissions. And so this kind of solution, I'm not saying it'll work. I'm not saying it won't work because there's obviously more testing that has to be done. But if this works, these are the kind of ingenious solutions, cows peeing on stuff and putting rock dust on plants that we grow for food. These are kind of the innovative and mutually beneficial ideas of solutions that can positively benefit us in huge ways going forward. And I wanted to bring this up because both of them are in the same vein of each other, but also goes to show how powerful it is when we all work together to where we can produce food and also mitigate climate change. It's a great slew of really good thinking going forward. And to be honest, it really excites me going forward to see that these are things that are being discussed and at the forefront of our minds right now. For my current event this week, I actually got sent this current event from our good friend, Australian CJ. And I got some groans from my co-hosts there while they're on mute. This article is from The Guardian, and it's titled, Coalition Proposes to Scrap Recovery Plans for 200 Endangered Species and Habitats. So Scott Morrison, who's the Prime Minister of Australia, and his regime have proposed that they're going to scrap recovery plans for almost 200 endangered species and habitats, including the Tasmanian devil, the whale shark, and the endangered glossy back cockatoo. Um, and all of those populations on Kangaroo Island, which is one of the worst affected areas of the 2019-2020 bushfires. Environmental groups have decreed this move as a step backward from the last 12 months of this review. Um, Australia's national environmental uh, laws found successive governments had failed to protect the country's unique wildlife. Recovery plans are documents that set out actions needed to stop the extinction of species. Prime ministers are legally bound not to make decisions that are inconsistent with them, though. So since changes were made to the legislation in 2007, they have been increasingly replaced with what's known as conservation advice, a similar document, but which does not have the same legal force under national law. Um, the Guardian Australia has previously reported that fewer than 40% of the listed threatened species have a recovery plan. A further 10% of all those listed have been identified as requiring a recovery plan, but those plans haven't been developed or they're unfinished. Even more plans are out of date. The Federal Environment Department revealed last year that it had not finalized every single recovery plan for threatened species in nearly 18 months, and more than 170 of the 200 species were overdue. All listed species, including those requiring a recovery plan, have conservation advice, in air quotes there, where legal action does not need to be taken on them. This year, the Australian government asked the Independent Threatened Species Scientific Committee, which advises it on endangered wildlife, to review recovery plans for over 900 threatened species and habitats to determine which should continue to have a recovery plan and which could continue to have, quotes, conservation advice. The committee advised 
that over 650 no longer required a recovery plan. And the government is responding to the committee's recommendations in the stages in this past week. In the first group of about 157 animals and plants and about 28 ecological communities for which it's scrapping these recovery plans. All of these include the vulnerable green and golden bell frog, the spectacled flying fox, that which had its threat upgraded to endangered after the heat waves of 2018. And all of this is, you know, kind of being reviewed now from a couple of years ago. So most of these plans aren't even taking into account the 2019-2020 bushfires that have killed and displaced 3 billion animals. Samantha Vine of BirdLife Australia said conservation advice was a good foundational document, but it was not robust a plan enough to get the species off the path of extinction. BirdLife Australia is concerned about the 19 threatened birds that may no longer require a recovery plan, including that glossy black, glossy black cockatoo population in Kangaroo Island in South Australia, and the northern masked owl and the abbot's booby. Conservation advices are not an adequate replacement for recovery plans. And they're much less rigorous in what they require, and they don't have the same legal clout. A spokesperson for the Environment Department said the recommendations were based on the best planning outcome for the individual threatened entity and are subject to public consultation prior to any final decision being made. Basically, these proposed changes have been recommended by the Independent Threatened Species Scientific Committee, and they're now available for public consultation. So... Really, we'll see what happens in Australia, considering all of the crazy conservation like news that's been coming out of there for the past couple of years. And, you know, there's just a lot of species that could be in real trouble, given, given this uh, lack of protection. That's nuts, actually. Like, that's... I didn't intend for it to be a spooky current events section, but here we are. Yeah, spook spooky Holy current crap. events. I... So I'm like, not aware there's, of that. There's about 900 species that are at risk of being extinct in the in the continent of Australia right now. Jesus Christ! Oh my God! I will be looking into that outside of this because that is a. Uh... I definitely feel like this is another type of current event that we're going to come back to, especially with uh, with Scomo being the way that he is. So yeah, Scomo a... for international listeners is Scott Morrison. That that's a biggie. That's a big one. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. Thank you for both of your current events. Very excited. Thanks, that Australian CJ. Yeah, thank uh, you, Australian you're, CJ. You're bloody welcome, mites. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for um, those current events. Uh, I say we can probably wrap that up and get into some spooky content aside from that spooky current event, but fun spooky stuff this time. So let's get into the main event. As I mentioned before, there is real power in a story. And the way that you frame an experience or a creature that you've seen can vastly alter the way that others see it. Then, as they pass that same experience down to whomever they would like to tell, they put their own flair on it as well. And this is the essentially of the creation of a story or folklore or, after a long enough time, even mythology. Sometimes, as I'll mention later, it only takes one person to kickstart this process. Other times, full groups of people, ranging from occupations to countries to religions and anything in between can get this started. For now though, I'd like to kind of take a fun little exercise to this episode 
And so what I'm going to do is describe the folkloric and mythological accounts of a couple of critters, and it is up to my good friends and co-hosts to take a stab at to what these creatures might be called. So let's restart this fire, get her going again, and get into some stories. So this first beast is actually a pretty popular one, which makes me pretty hopeful we'll be starting out with a successful ID. This creature was known to inhabit the deserts and the prairies out in the western and midwestern United States. It was small, about the size of just a large rodent, but regularly made itself known to hunters and campers. Now out west, you see, nightly activities included campfires just like us out under the stars right now, equipped with storytelling, yet again like us, as well as song. And everybody would be in the middle of yet another little ditty when, out from behind the bushes in the shadows, this beast would sing the song back with an apparent ability to mock human speech in voices similarly to that of a parrot's. It wasn't necessary for the campers to venture out and explore who made the sound though. They always knew who was singing back to them, but if they had wanted to, they could have drawn it out with its favorite drink, whiskey. And if they did draw it out, they'd better have been careful because these furry and antlered little creatures didn't always have the most pleasant attitudes. Does anyone have any guesses? Brittany, why don't you give me what you think first? Give me your best <laughs> guess, Brittany. All right. <laughs> I have one question. One question. I, I can answer one question. Okay. What is it? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I can answer no questions. Um, is this like a an animal that is currently alive that is being used in for folklore? No. Okay. No. <laughs> Not at all. Okay, excellent. We love this. We love this. Was that going to help you? If I said yes, was that easier? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> all right. I respect it. Are we, you were really going to give me no hints? Can I have uh -huh. one hint? Uh-huh. One you hint. You got to guess, B. You got to guess. Because CJ knows it. I'm almost, I'm fairly confident CJ knows it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna guess barn owl. No, barn owl is not feathered or antlered, Brittany. It's the jackalope. Jackalo. Barn owls are feathered. Oh dang! I meant furry. <laughs> they're they're feathered, not furry. Thanks, Matthew. That's so chaotic. I love it. The spooky bunch is gonna be chaotic, folks. Yes. Maybe not next week. We gotta be professional next week, but yeah. <laughs> As I stated, you know, with the antlers and the fur, the answer is the jackalope. Now, one thing I do want to posit about the jackalope before we move on, and this is just a fun little fact, is that the jackalope might actually have been maybe kind of real because jackrabbits, and then first described in like cottontail rabbits, actually can get this disease where they have like bony growths that grow out of their head that if placed in the right spot can kind of look like antlers. So, jackalopes, not real, folkloric, but interesting nod to potentially what it might be. So let's move on to the next one, shall we? Now let me be the first to say that descriptions of this creature's appearance aren't exactly the most conclusive. Now that would require 
people seeing it, and not only that, surviving it, to be able to describe it. Back in the 18 and the 1900s, logging camps were all the rage, and it wasn't uncommon for things to go missing from them. Lumberjacks regularly seemed to be losing axes and dynamite and sometimes even their friends and co-workers. Logging was a particularly dangerous venture without the addition of this beast. It was the reason for phantom twig snaps in the forest. For that shadow that always seemed to move just out of the corner of your eye in the forest. And what people could describe from this creature, it was thin. Incredibly thin. So thin, in fact, that it would stalk its prey in nothing short of plain sight. It would follow lumberjacks around just out of their line of vision, creeping ever so closer. And if it got too close and somebody turned around, it would use that pencil-thin form to quickly hide behind a tree just out of sight. And when the time was right and it had gained enough ground on its victim, it pounced, dragging the unfortunate soul to their lair, one that nobody returned from. This beast made logging infinitely more dangerous, unless you drank, apparently. Alcohol was the only way to ward this creature off, and it led to logging camps being chock full of this stuff. You see, the drinking wasn't for fun, it was for safety. So does anybody want to take a stab at what this thing might have been called? I guess I'm going to repeat Brittany's question. Is this a real animal or a fake animal? Nope. It's fake? Yes. So is it Flat Stanley? Flat Stanley. <laughs> no, no. Not Flat Stanley? It is not multiverse Flat Stanley. <laughs> Brittany, any guesses? Is it Sasquatch? No, Sasquatch is thick. He thick boy. That's true. <laughs> he a thick boy. With two C's. Double caked up on a Sasquatch afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is not Bigfoot, but that is a better guess than Barn Owl for the Jackalope. I'll give you that Listen! One. <laughs> Listen! I don't need this! Matthew, what is this? What is this spooky this. story? What is this spooky story about, Matthew? So there was a phrase that I emphasized where it hides behind a tree because this creature is actually called the hide behind because of its known propensity for hiding behind things. Lame. I don't know. I wouldn't be calling it lame if it was slicing me open and realizing I was... Lame. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. This next one isn't, though. This next beast is quite the looker. And no, I don't mean that literally. It was common for those out in the woods of the Midwest to hear phantom noises coming from deep within the trees. And it was also terrifying. I'm talking like people regularly like hear screams and things. Sometimes, though, these sounds took a bit more of, well, a sad turn rather than terrifying. You see, phantom crying is actually a pretty common phenomenon across the world, and it spawned a lot of folklore across cultures, including the story of La Llorona, and a hefty assortment, especially in the United States, of crybaby bridges. In northern Pennsylvania, though, adventurers know when they hear crying that there's no ghosts. 
and no spirits behind it. But they don't go searching for it either, because nobody, including this creature, can bear the sight of it, supposedly due to how purely ugly it is. It's said to be covered in fleshy, really grossly colored, ill-fitting skin, with wrinkles and warts and everything in between that might make you go, ugh. And when it looks into a puddle or a lake and it sees its reflection, it literally bursts into tears, simply due to the sadness over how ugly it is. It doesn't want to be seen, not even by itself, and is so good at hiding that the only way to find this creature is to follow that line of tears that it leaves on the ground. Be warned, though, because if you do end up following this beast's trail, it might not end up being the only one crying. Would anyone like to venture as to what this might be called? I have an immediate guess. Oh, I know what you're going to say. I have an immediate guess. I what also it, have CJ? an immediate guess. My immediate guess is CJ Greco. <laughs> Hideously ugly, cries every day, looks at it reflections and cries. That's me to a T, baby. This is not... This is, it is not you. It is yeah, not you. Honestly, damn. CJ, you do not live in northern Pennsylvania. You're right. Ah, should have been a key giveaway there. Mm-hmm. Key giveaway. Brittany? Um, well, I don't have any great guesses, so I'm just gonna, going to guess the Chupacabra. In Pennsylvania? Or CJ. That's, it's me, obviously. It's CJ on vacation. No. It's me on no. vacation. No, <laughs> no, no. It is not CJ Greco. It is not the Chupacabra. It is, in fact, a creature known as the Squonk. Squonk. Yeah, basically. basically. <laughs> but yes, it is called the Squonk. Squonk. And the Squonk's lore Squonk. is that it's so ugly Squonk. that it sees itself and cries. I mean, I'm sure if it heard its name, it would cry too. Squonk. Yeah, Squonk. Probably. It's probably Squonk. the sound of the cry, frankly. Squonk. Oh, Squonk. no. Pokemon now. <laughs> Squonk. Squonk. All right, Matthew, oh, right. bring us into our next uh, campfire story. Mm-hmm. This last creature might actually just be the weirdest one out of the bunch, and that really, truly is saying something. I'm looking at you, Mr. Squonk. It is also the only one that happens to be aquatic. Now, up in the lakes of the Northwoods, there is said to be a creature akin to, as some might say, a siren, a beast who pries upon victims by luring them in with beautiful songs it's black and white in color almost in like a scaly pattern and it has piercing yet really beautiful red eyes by all reports it's said to be a beautiful creature by the few who are lucky enough to see it from afar and survive that that is you see this creature is highly regarded for its swimming capabilities and it oftentimes is able to pop up and slink back into the deep before a boater or a fisher can turn around to see what made the noise that disturbed their silence. Those sounds, those haunting sounds of something moving just to the side or even below you are pretty common up where their beast is found, but they're not nearly as bone chilling as its song. Reports of this beast's song, the one it uses to lure in its victims, range widely. But there's one common thread described by all who have come across it and lived to tell the tale. It's like nothing else they've ever heard on those lakes. Most describe it as almost like a melodic singing, 
some even as a tonal yodeling that bellows across the lake. It uses this song to lure in folks on the water as they get close, just a little bit too close, and peer overboard to see where it's coming from, the first thing they see are those bright, fiery eyes. By then, it's too late. The beast bursts out of the water, almost as if it's been shot straight out of a cannon. If the victim is lucky enough to stay in the boat, they've survived with the story to tell. Because the beast never strikes twice, as it's lost its element of surprise. However, for those who aren't so lucky, there's no more stories to be told. And unfortunately, this also means they can't warn any others of the danger that lies on those lakes up in Wisconsin and Minnesota. Does anybody want to guess who is haunting the North Woods? So, so you're telling me lives in the water, has fiery red eyes, black and white. It is obviously a 1950s vampire mermaid. Oh, this is so good. That's way better than what I was going to joke about. Oh, no way. <laughs> That's way better than what I was going to joke about. I was going to reference the mid-2000s mockumentary about mermaids, the body found. Oh, no. <laughs> Not that one. I hated that. So uh, I think Brittany's, Brittany's bit got me beat. It's like a little strongman swim, swimwear, like the black and white stripes. It's exactly yeah. picturing. Got a little apron. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Only feast on human, human blood, given in a Twilight reference. Right, absolutely, absolutely. Yes. Eyes glow no, red, it sparkles in the sunlight, absolutely. Oh, no. <laughs> it does actually kind of glisten in the sunlight. Wow, I guess Brittany might have been onto something. It's more so because of the water, but... No, All what right, you're man. just telling me is that I'm right. Thank you. Thank you. What do we got, Matthew? What's, you're what's, very what's this far bad boy off. called? What's this, this bad, bad boy, boy called? is called the common loon. I'm Are you up. looning me? No, I played Are you, you both. What? <laughs> Play Are you looning me? <laughs> do I hear a merch design? What does that mean, Britain? I don't I don't think anybody knows. <laughs> I don't know. It just came out. You could have said, like, are you loony? <laughs> are you looting me? I no, think that's... that's... <laughs> Merch design. <laughs> Merch design. I think that's where, like, my brain was headed. And then that's not what my mouth Are you looting me right now? You no. gotta be absolutely looting me, Matthew. <laughs> I am not looting you. I just discarded the common loon. You gotta be freaking looting me, my guy. <laughs> Yeah, it's the common loon. I clickbaited. The common loon has evaded me many times in my hunt for it. So, you you've me. never had common loon? Never. Wow. I've gone try. I've tried many times. Wow. I don't know. I I guess with all the summers I've spent up in Wisconsin, I'm pretty used to it. But yeah, that does surprise me that it's evaded you. That's not an uncommon yeah. migrant in our area. Yeah, it's a it's a spooky boy. It's a it spooky is boy. It is. Those calls on a lake are actually genuinely haunting. Now, the reason I wanted to do this little fun exercise around the campfire is because I personally think it's important to recognize just how important a story is and how much those details matter. These details and these stories have the power to suck us in and really care about something. They're exciting and enticing, and they make us want to know more. Now, the way I framed the common loon, just to 
you know, a regular old species makes made it seem so mysterious and unknown, and most of all, like a sexy mermaid vampire. Genuinely, though, it's a really, really powerful effect that stories have that have a lot of influence over communities. Take, for example, one of my favorites, the Hodag, a beast that I've referenced, but never fully delved into on this pod. In 1893, a logger came back into town, now known as Rhinelander, Wisconsin, from his tour with some curious remains in tow, those of an undiscovered beast that he called the Hodag. He told the townsfolk he had saved them all by killing it with a blast of dynamite, much to their uh, disbelief. So he did the only thing that he could do to convince them. He captured one, he brought it to town, and he started up a show similar to P.T. Barnum's museum. Visitors were charged a fee to come in and view the Hodag, which was usually deemed at the event to be too unruly to be viewed. It wouldn't be safe and the Hodag would kill them. The ruse went so far that the Smithsonian Museum itself sent a reporter to get the scoop and then the lumberjack came clean knowing that this was not somebody who was about to be duped. And you would think that would be the end of the Hodag, but it's still the mascot of the school, the main tourist attraction, and a major gift shop of the community. It's an important figure in their history and in their culture as a community and gives us a blueprint towards how to treat conservation stories. You see, by treating the Hodag as a very individual figure, just as the common loon was treated or any other of those, as a community definer, and by giving it a story, a dynamic one, like the lore of the jackalope, or as stated, the fake lore of the common loon slash mermaid thingy, it's gained notoriety. It brings a lot to the community of Rhinelander, be it joy or money or an identity, and in turn, the townsfolk actually equally feed it. They keep the hodag, the subject of that folklore, of that story, alive by continuing to tell the story. And imagine the kind of good that can come from this power with endangered species. When we had Chris Allieri on for Wild Chicago, one thing I'll never forget that he mentioned is that each animal they deal with isn't just a member of a species, it's an individual. It has a story, and it has a story, more importantly, that deserves to be told. And what's awesome is that in Chicago, we're genuinely seeing this and lucky enough to see this play out real time. Monty and Rose have documentaries, storybooks, and most importantly, a carved out place in the Chicago community. As time has gone on, this story has spread both figuratively and literally. Their son, Nish, started the first Lake Erie nest in almost about 80 years this year. And birders like Chris from New York, who live literally halfway across the country, hold those two birds and, in turn, the operation in Chicago in the highest regard. By absorbing the identities and individual stories of Monty and Rose into Chicago's history, both parties have gained something. Monty and Rose, and consequently, Piping Plovers are receiving major community support, and Chicago is being recognized for their role in gaining a story that has the power to be passed down from generation to generation. It is a powerful thing we are witnessing the beginning of folklore. 
And all we need now is a good campfire to sit around to tell it. I really love that notion of storytelling to bring community together and rally around conservation, right? You look at things like the Panamanian golden frog. It's a species that went extinct in the wild just due to, you know, chemicals in the water or whatever it was. And that species went extinct in the wild. But the entire country of Panama has come around this species and it's a little like on their currency. It's one of the staples of their nation is the Panamanian golden frog. And captive populations continue to thrive. And I'm pretty sure there's a bunch of projects actively trying to reintroduce them because it's such a in integral part of that community in Panama. You know, the, you think about Guam kingfishers, another species that went extinct in the wild, and all the other species of birds on Guam that have gone extinct, like the Guam rail, which was our, what, third ever creature feature. There are so many species who communities have come around just because of the conservation story, and people get excited about storytelling. People in the communities get excited. People outside of the communities want to show their love for those stories and give any in any way they can to support. You know, it's it's a beautiful thing, really. And I love the idea of applying that same concept of conservation storytelling to the idea of communities coming around like cryptids and stuff. Right? It's a really beautiful thing. And tying it back to the common moon, there, gorgeous. One thing I'll also posit is that like. In the same vein of what you were talking about, to connect it back to a current event that we discussed earlier, the story of the condor that Brittany brought up, it's in the same exact vein, which was not planned at all, but really, really sanctimoniously beautiful. As as CJ was talking about that, I was like, literally the, the current event that we talked about, because... Like without the like that tribe and their community and their connection to this condor through their heritage and their ceremonies and things like that, and the, that connection uh, opening up this door for them to want to bring that condor back to the Pacific Northwest and carrying on yeah. their their conservation story, and it's just beautiful and it's a it's just a very beautiful moment and and ideal. Mm-hmm. Another one that makes me think of is the American bison, right? Yeah. An integral oh part God. of yeah. uh, indigenous culture who nearly went extinct because the lack of storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like people who were moving in, like basically white people colonizers who were moving into these places didn't know the history, didn't know the stories, and so they didn't care. So now that we know how integral it is to that community, there has been nonstop conservation effort around the American bison. Mm-hmm. And it's become our national mammal as a result. Storytelling, quite simply, in my eyes, gives us that ability to connect, is mm. the way I see it. You know, when you go to the zoo, and we've talked about this a lot about the ability of a zoo to connect, every single time you get a connection <laughs> at a zoo, it's from the story, the story that yep. is presented yep. in front of you. I think that's something that I find so special about our shared past in in being able to to be able to be a part of that and do interpretation. And it's something that is one of the reasons why I find interpretation so important because it is just that storytelling, whether it's between the personal connections and the personal stories you have with whatever species or just really being able to connect somebody by sharing a really cool, fun fact. It's the storytelling that the 
the connection that is the key point in, in making conservation go further and in, in connecting people to conservation. And I feel like a really good way to kind of wrap this up, we're talking about storytelling, we're talking about interpretation, talking about conservation. It really just brings me back to when we discussed Freeman Tilden and interpretation as a whole. And it makes me think of, Brittany, what you just said, made me think of this quote by Freeman Tilden. I say it every single time. I probably said it 10 times in this podcast. Through interpretation, understanding, through understanding, appreciation, and through appreciation, protection. People don't even know that they want to be engaged yet. And it's our job as educators, as interpreters, as conservationists, as nature lovers to share the stories of nature and get people excited about it. And once they're excited about it, they're going to be wanting to protect it. So thank you for such a fun episode today, Matt. I really enjoyed it. I'm and so a great glad. start to the spooky bunch. I I do feel like it wasn't spooky, like spooky, spooky, but I think it's I don't know. We talked about mermaid vampires. So that's spooky. true. Uh, unintentionally i might add but are you looning me i'm not looning you are you freaking looning right now matthew no unfortunately i am not so i'll say that just about wraps up this time around the campfire we're all out of marshmallows and our you know stuff for our s'mores so might as well you guys throw had water on fire yeah, where were you at? Yeah, Why didn't you offer me any? I had none. It, I thought it was sitting right there. I thought it was an open. I didn't want to be rude. I I'm not eating a whole bag of marshmallows. All right, I'll know next time. Well, if you want, I can leave the fire going just for a little bit more. But we will be revisiting the campfire in a later episode of this year's Spooky Bunch as well. So not to worry. There will be more s'more supplies going forward. Fair enough. But... Before we put a little bit of a bucket of water on this campfire, um, we all love sharing stories. So before we put the lights out and put this episode to sleep, uh, Brittany and CJ, where can people find the stories that you share on social media? You can find me on the social meds on Instagram at cj.greco. That's cj.greco. And... Um... I don't know. Maybe I'll maybe I'll see a common loon before this episode comes out. I highly doubt it. They're definitely gone by now. But <laughs> you know, I, I I try to post some relevant content, so we'll see what happens. You can also find me on Instagram at the Brittany underscore bunch T H E B R I T T A N Y underscore B U N C H. Um gonna i kind of post it regularly but it's always fun stuff uh, i'll probably be posting some more uh dog photos soon so check it out and you can find me on instagram at matt valiga that is m-a-t-t-v is in spooky vulture a-l-i-g-a matt spooky vulture starts with an s no there's a silent v oh it's v-s-p-o-o-k-y spooky which is unlike our merch code. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, that's just the S-P-O-K-Y. Um, but yeah, I will be sharing whatever. I'm in kind of a storytelling mood, so I might try and make something out of that. But if you'd like to see the stories that we share collectively as a podcast, you can go follow us on Instagram at the Birdie Bunch Podcast. Or if you'd like, you can also go check out our website, www.thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. There you can find 
links to our individual episodes. You can listen from there. You can also find the link to our blog posts, which will give you, you know, resources that we use for these episodes. It'll also give you a little bit about us, our stories as individuals, and the links to our merch store and our Patreon. Now, like we said at the top of the episode, if you'd like some Spooky Bunch merch, make sure to go check out that merch store. We are running a sale for 15% off your whole entire order. All you have to do is put in the code, all caps, SPOOKY, not with the silent V, just S-P-O-O-K-Y. And that's it, 15% off. If you'd also like to support us and kind of want extra behind the scenes kind of stuff, you can go to our Patreon we have three different tiers offered there, which will get you various levels of um, things. But one of them that's synchronous throughout all of them is we like to thank our patrons. So thank you, Gabe Anderley, for being our patron. If you can't support us financially, totally understand. Frankly, I can't support myself financially. And if you'd like to help us out, you can rate this podcast. If you leave us a five-star review, we will actually read your podcast review online on air. Um, We don't have any new ones, so nothing to report. But even if you don't have a five-star review, we won't read it. But we really appreciate all the critiques, advice, anything that you have. Really love hearing back from y'all and getting that engagement. As well as, you can also just share this podcast with a friend, right? Like we've all at some time told a fisherman's story. I totally get it. Everyone loves telling stories, and if you enjoyed listening to some of these stories and love talking about dialogue and word of mouth and stuff like that, share this with a friend. Literally share our story with a friend. We love it. We can't do what we do without all y'all listeners, so we really appreciate it. Now, does anybody have anything else that needs to be said before we uh, put a close on this one? Everybody have a, a spook, spook-filled, spook, spooky week. Lo- loon you next time. <laughs> oh, this sounds bad. <laughs> Let us know if you see any vampire mermaids out there. Or any squonks. <laughs> <laughs> Squonk. 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 Well, with that said, thank you for joining us for the first episode of the Spooky Lunch Podcast. Make sure to find your way back to the fire for next time, but don't get lost in the dark along the way. We'll catch you next time. Nice. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. We would like to thank Sarah Dunlap for designing our logos, Elliot Hyde for being our writing and production assistant, and Connor Whitman for being our music producer. The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination. I really went hard on that theme. I'm not going to hey, lie. Hey, guys, just, just to clarify how I feel about this episode. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs>